so um, I'm here with um, with Bill Cohan uh, in his in his uh, Upper West Side apartment, which uh, I'm just gonna intellectuals retreat. I'm just gonna say this: it's a beautiful home, beautiful artwork on the wall, which you clearly didn't get from your Vanity Fair salary because you were a banker before. Yeah, I spent 17 years uh, as an M&A banker on Wall Street, and you're right. Um, this comes; uh, these are the dividends of another career in tight early. <clears throat> Can you tell the um, the the servants to uh, fetch me some <laughs> some pails of water? Now, this is the Upper West Side, Nick. We do things ourselves here. <laughs> uh, you know, you ha- you, we have a doorman. That's about as nice as it gets here. Um, uh, the trials and tribulations. Um, so most people go the opposite direction. They become journalists. They do that for a few years, and then they go be the banker or Goldman Sachs or something. What made you go in this direction? Well, I, I sort of did that. I I, I was uh, a journalist. Uh, you know, I went to Columbia Journalism School, graduated in 1983, and uh, worked as a, a reporter on a daily paper in North Carolina for two years. What was your beat? Um, I covered public schools, public education wow. in Wake County, North Carolina, which was a, a doubly ironic because I've never been to a public school in my life. So <laughs> they thought of me covering public education uh, in Wake County, which which was a really interesting beat because uh, uh, there was a lot of controversy at the time. They were trying to deal with how to integrate their schools in the inner city of Raleigh, and uh, they came up with this program of quote-unquote magnet schools, and they had a carpetbagger school superintendent from New Jersey who came down and tried to implement a system of magnet schools, and uh, things went uh, off the rails a little bit. Uh, I wrote a bunch of stories that ended up getting him fired. Oh, nice. Uh, Good uh, for you. That was the way I sort of started there. Uh, And and then I thought, well, what I really want to do is work at the Wall Street Journal. And I had always wanted to work at the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, back in the days when the Bancroft family owned it. Not not now, with all due respect, even if uh, Rupert's house is burning down uh, outside of uh, L.A. Amen. I wanted to work at the old Wall Street Journal because I thought their reporting and writing was exceptional. And so I had tried out of uh, journalism school and without success. Uh, A lot of my classmates uh, went on to great success at the Journal, like Tony Horowitz and Geraldine Brooks and Ron Suskind, but I could not follow in their footsteps. So I thought I would go to Columbia Business School. If I went back to business school and I had a business degree and a journalism degree, that would be it. That would be the secret to getting me to the journal. Uh, and uh, that didn't happen either. Uh, so you fell on your sword so, and went to... So literally, uh, I graduated in May of 87. And at that time, all you had to do was breathe and you get a job on Wall Street. <laughs> so I couldn't get a job at the Wall Street Journal, but I could get a job at Wall Street. So then I spent the next 17 years as an M&A guy uh, on Wall Street. And that's... That's the source of um, uh, of the servants and the... Uh, of the, of the money that bought this apartment. But I bought it in 1991, which was when the market was quite low and it's appreciated considerably. And you know the art. Uh, so I have a question. Let's just jump right in. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I cannot understand, <clears throat> and I'm hoping that you can shed light on this, is why the stock market is so high right now when so many people are terrified that the world is going to burn into oblivion? Yeah, you know, Nick, you, you specialize in great questions uh, on your podcast, and that's why I love it so much. Uh, uh, that is a great question as well. And the reason that uh, the stock market is so high is 
there, uh, there are several reasons. One, the stock market, uh, uh, the stock market is correlated with corporate earnings. Corporate earnings have been really high, uh, uh, basically all-time highs uh, for you know five or six years now. The economy has been growing. Certain industries have been just gushing cash. Uh, J.P. Morgan. Chase uh, uh, prints seven billion dollars in net income a quarter now. That's twenty-eight billion a year. That's record. It's been record profits for the past three years. And a lot of companies, whether it's uh, Google or Facebook, you know, they're really uh, 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 printing a lot of money. Uh, and so uh, there is a correlation between stock price and profitability. That's number one. Um, uh, why has it gone up so much? I think the main reason it's gone up so much is that because. Uh, the bond market is an incredibly unattractive place to invest your money now. All right, so I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that most of the people listening to this podcast don't know what that means. Yeah. Can you, as the former banker turned journalist, tell us how the bond market plays into the stock market being so high? So the bond market is about four or five times the size of the stock market. Which, of course, nobody even realizes. Wow. And what I mean by the bond market is that's all the money invested in corporate debt, in, in municipal debt, uh, in U.S. Treasury debt. That's a lot of money, right? As big as we think of the stock market uh, as, the bond market is four to five times bigger. It used to be 10 or 15 times bigger, but the stock market has uh, outpaced it in the last uh, uh, decade or so. Uh, you know, when when the stock market goes from 6,500 in March of 2009 to 24,200 today, uh, that's a major league four four times uh, increase in in valuations. And you know, when Donald Trump boasts about how he's added whatever uh, trillions of dollars of wealth to the country through the stock market that's gone up since he was elected, he's he's not wrong. But um, so you have to uh, understand that there's a finite pool of capital that people can invest. They'll, most of the time, for simplicity's sake, they'll either invest it in the stock market or the bond market. Uh, the bond market has become much riskier than the stock market. Why? 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 Because in the last eight years, the Fed has uh, pursued this zero interest rate policy. It has basically knocked down interest rates without getting into the details of how they did it and so-called quantitative easing and all that, they've, they've knocked down interest rates to the lowest levels, you know, that we've seen in our history, right? So, so and for, the, for, for people, the, the simple way to think about this is when they look at their checking account and their savings account, what is the interest rate that they get from the bank on that? They get close to zero, you know, 0.1% or 0.25% interest. But interest rates are so low that investors don't want to invest in those securities because they can't get the yield that they want. To put it in sort of like a Hollywood terminology that you might appreciate, I think what's going on now is what I call the yield hunger games. So that people, oh, investors around the world, are desperate for yield. Yep. And they can't get it in the bond market. Number one, because interest rates are so low. Number two, risk is being mispriced in the bond market. Because the Fed has gone in to artificially buy, I mean, the Fed's balance sheet uh, has gone from $800 billion before the crisis to $4.5 trillion now. So You're talking about the crisis in 2008? 2008, right. So, so the Fed has gone in and bought $3.7 you know, trillion worth of bonds that they ordinarily would, they created demand in the bond market where it wouldn't ordinarily be. 
When you create more demand, artificial demand, that drives the prices of things up. And since interest rates uh, trade in inverse proportion to their price, when you drive up the price of a bond, you drive down its yield. And so how, if, how has the Fed buying up all of the, these bonds, has it not affected the dollar or, or a multitude of other things in negative ways? I mean, that money has to have been going somewhere else before that. Well, so, so what uh, uh, the Fed has done by keeping interest rates so low, it's basically it's forced investors to say, where do I want to put my money? And they don't want to put it in bonds because interest rates are too low. And also, now that actually the Fed has decided to change course and is beginning to raise interest rates, you don't want to be an investor in the bond market when interest rates are rising. Because when interest rates rise, the value of your bond goes down. And unless you're holding it to maturity, that's a sucker's game. So you don't want to do that. And so why not invest in the stock market, especially, you know, corporate profits are high. There are plenty of dividend-yielding stocks uh, that offer you more yield than uh, bonds do, and you get the upside of the stock. Uh, you know, companies like Facebook and Apple and Google are just like going gangbusters. So basically, uh, you've got uh, a bubble in the bond market and a bubble in the stock market, uh, which makes, frankly, investing uh, very difficult and ironically, to go back to your earlier point, uh, leads people to be very worried. But, okay, so, but if, if I'm worried, right, I am, my actions would speak that way. And it seems that the investing actions are not. They are still optimistic. I mean, maybe some, is, is part of it as a result of the, the, the tax regulation that's going through? Is it part of it as a result of the deregulation of, you know, of all these laws that, that um, rules that, that Trump is putting back. So all of those are, you're nodding your head. Yes. Right? So, right. I'm nodding my head because the answer is yes. A lot of people are excited to think that corporate profits are going to, uh, that have been high, are going to stay high because when you cut the corporate tax rate from yep. third, 35 to 20, already there's 15 basis points of increase presumably in profits, assuming that these companies actually paid a 35% tax rate. So, so corporate profits could go even higher. Uh, uh, Trump is rolling back regulations across industries, meaning that it's, you know, the Wild West is returning. Uh, uh, you know, if you want to drill in the Anwar, you know, go ahead, drill. <laughs> if you want another million acres out in uh, uh, Utah, you know, fine, do what the heck you want with it. I mean, so basically Trump is saying, uh, you know, and in Wall Street, regulation is coming off left and right. So I think the market's big move from 17,000 when Trump got elected to 24,000 uh, today, which is, you know, a big move in the Dow, uh, is a result of people anticipating that he would be able to, to roll back and, and do some of the things you know, one of the great virtues of the Donald Trump presidency is his incompetence. Uh, uh, if he could actually do more, it would be scary. Uh, uh, but the th a few things that he has accomplished are actually, um, uh, are, you know, are, are helpful to corporate profits and the stock market. Okay, so, but, but this, is, this is not sustainable indefinitely, right? I mean, you've got... What, you, no. What, no. What, are the, what are the things that could happen to make it all plummet. What my question is, is yeah. the, and the reason I 
I came all this way today yeah. to the Upper West Side from Hollywood. It, I, I want to understand, like, how does this end? Because uh, it seems it, like it's it, going to end badly. Yeah, it doesn't end with a whimper. It ends with a bang. Uh, and it ends with a bang because uh, given Trump, uh, you're probably going to have some sort of exogenous event. Like? Are we talking I mean, war? Are we I, talking... I mean, we, 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 we could be talking about... I mean, again, with Trump, one doesn't know for sure. I mean, he, he lit the powder keg today in the Middle East, yeah. right? Uh, that was a self-inflicted wound. Didn't need to do that. He's picking a fight <laughs> with uh, uh, a mini-me dictator in North Korea who's now got intercontinental ballistic missiles uh, that can reach the West Coast or even the East Coast. I mean, so, I mean, just for fun, he could lob one of those around. That certainly would uh, disrupt uh, uh, people's outlook uh, on the markets. Uh, uh, you know, I think that... Um, uh, I have argued in Vanity Fair that this could be the first tax plan that causes a recession. If it causes a recession, then obviously corporate profits are going to go down and the stock market is going to go down. So that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about, your, your, your recession beliefs. Um, why do you think that this tax plan, which clearly benefits certain people that like to spend money um, – would then in turn result in the opposite of that happening. I think that, that one of the provisions, this elimination of state and local tax deductibility, uh, affects people uh, directly in five large states, California, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, and Illinois. Uh, uh, in those states, uh, generally speaking, people's single largest asset uh, is their home. Correct. Uh, if you can no longer deduct state and local taxes, many, much of which is property tax related, yep. then, the, then the value, then the, the, then the cost of operating your home on an annual basis is going to go up. If the cost of operating your home on an annual basis goes up, then the value of the home is going to go down because somebody looking to buy your home is going to say, well, I, I pay you this, but now, you know, the state and local tax deduction has gone away. And it's going to cost me you know, 6% more or whatever to, to, to own this house. So if I, it's going to cost me 6% more on an annual basis to own this house, I only want to pay you, you know, this much money, which is going to be considerably less than it was worth, you know, before they passed this tax plan. Now, some people could say, well, the home prices have gotten out of hand. Young people can't afford homes now. This would enable younger people to afford homes. That not that all to the good? But if your largest asset is your home and you're not feeling nearly as wealthy as you were before the tax plan, because Lord knows most of the tax plan is geared to the super rich and not, uh, you know, ordinary Americans, then, you know, your wallet is going to be closed at Christmas time and at birthday time and all these other times uh, uh, when you might otherwise be spending uh, money. Uh, and if you're not spending money, then then the uh, we are a consumer-driven economy. Then the economy slows, and you head into a recession. If the, we go into a recession, then the stock market falls, bond uh, ra uh, interest rates go up, uh, and uh, bond prices fall, and it's sort of a, a disaster scenario. Cats and dogs living together. Um, e even even absent the exogenous, uh, intangible Donald Trump effect. So, which, which, frankly, I think in the last year we've been very fortunate to avoid. Uh, uh, you know, he, he's like uh, a high beta individual. Okay, so last question on this topic, and, and then I want to switch a little. It, um, the, the recession um, 
is these these new tax rules and so on and so forth with um, the, what that you just mentioned are clearly going to stop people from buying homes. Do you believe that that will be the because that's where it affects it's, it mostly affects new homes, correct? Well, or existing homes, the secondary market of homes. I mean, so so it'll it'll affect uh, new home sales uh, for a period of time. It'll affect uh, you know secondary home sales. I mean. Uh, you know, it takes time for buyers and sellers to adjust their expectations. But so my question is, is, do you think that that is going to be the thing that precipitates everything else, kind of like a domino effect? I do. When when your biggest asset is not worth what you thought it was, you know, a few months ago, uh, uh, the so-called wealth effect in reverse, uh, you're feeling poorer, you're not going to open your wallet to buy a new car or to buy a new refrigerator or to go out to dinner for the 17th time. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Now, I'm sure you've heard of HelloFresh, the scrumptious meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers your favorite step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. But I'm here today to tell you what makes them so amazing. You get to choose your delivery day when you want it and when it works best for you and your schedule. You could pause your account if you're going out of town. All the ingredients come pre-measured in handy labeled meal kits, so you don't have to figure out which ingredient goes with which recipe and so on and so forth. HelloFresh has tons of chef-curated recipes that change weekly, and they have so many options for all us picky eaters out there. There's the veggie option, the meat-based option, fish, you name it. So I've been using HelloFresh for a few weeks, and some of my personal favorites are the Juicy Lucy Burger with tomato, onion, jam, and arugula salad. It is amazing. I know you're probably starving just listening to this. Another one is the lobster ravioli and shrimp with tomatoes and tarragon. This ad is making me so hungry right now. I personally love cooking, but I love HelloFresh more. The food is just so simple to prepare. There's no wasted produce or leftovers, and it's just delicious. One thing that HelloFresh is doing is it's giving listeners of Inside the Hive $30 off the first week that they order from HelloFresh. All you need to do is order from HelloFresh.com and enter the code HIVE30. Once again, that's H-I-V-E 30. Once again, just go to HelloFresh.com, enter the code HIVE30, and you're going to get $30 off your first week of HelloFresh. I guarantee you're going to love the food. It's going to be simple to prepare, and you're probably never going to want to go out or go to the grocery store ever again. All right, now that you've depressed me. Well, maybe it's not. I mean, this, it's like this bitter, this, honestly, I'd be quite frank. There's a, there's a bittersweet part of it. It's because it drives me batshit that I see Donald Trump on TVs being like, I made the Dow what it is today. And, and there's a big part of me, although I don't want to see the country fall into recession and people's homes and so on and so forth. There's a big part of me that would like to see him not be able to say that. Uh, because I don't believe yes. he deserves to say that. He doesn't deserve to say Because if you look at the markets under Obama... The market was in March of '09 was 6,500. When Obama left office, it was 17,000 or 17,500. So I mean, so most of that goes to Obama. The move from 17 to 24, okay, we have to give that to to the Trumpster. We're not, we're not giving it to him. I'm well, sorry. <laughs> chronologically, yes, we do. I'm joking. Uh, I'm joking. But, but uh, you know, you're right. I mean, this economy was set in motion uh, by by the Obama administration. By the way. You know, I think these things are cyclical. Don't forget, we, we had a massive financial crisis mm-hmm. in 2008 that really began in 2007. And so, you know, people were really 
bleak. Uh, people lost their homes, uh, uh, you know, consumer spending contracted. contracted. I mean, so, uh, you know, eventually people forget that and get out of their funk and, and the animal spirits start moving again. The animal spirits were already revved up well before Donald Trump became uh, president a year ago. So you, um, on Wall Street, you spent quite a bit of time, and I, I look at Wall Street almost like um, I take my kids to the zoo sometimes, and there's certain animals that I don't know what they eat and what they do and, like, what they, why they're here. Uh, can you kind of, I mean, what is, what is the culture like? Uh, um, is it what we see in the movies? Is it, like, this, uh, this you know, beating your chest and uh, corporate jets and, you know, Hookers and fast cars. I mean, what? Uh, you know, uh, well, I've written obviously a lot yeah, about this. Yeah, a lot this. of books. Um, uh, so, I mean, I've written books that explore the culture of Wall Street at various firms. I've written uh, uh, after the Wolf of Wall Street came out. I wrote a column in the New York Times about how that's not what it's like on Wall Street. People are not taking quaaludes and then going on their back uh, to get into their, their Lamborghini and driving off uh, from the country club. Um, uh, you, know, you know, there were, I suppose, uh, a dwarf tossing at one point. I mean, a lot of that. I mean, we're talking about... I, I uh, love that. I, there were, I suppose, if we really have to get into the nitty-gritty... I mean, I it. never saw it, yeah. but I've seen, uh, heard, heard tell of it. Uh, most of the time, it's just... Uh, people kind of working really hard, uh, getting paid well, but probably not as well as they used to, because now the people who get paid the best are, are people who work at hedge funds or private equity firms. But, you know, Wall Street people still get paid much better than, say, if they were a journalist uh, or walking, working for a monthly magazine or, uh, pretty mu- or a teacher or a plumber or pretty much anything that they, else that they could do without risking their own capital. Now, now has, the, has the culture changed a lot, um, I mean, especially since 2008, or is it kind of – was that the way it is now and that's the way it was then? It, it's a little hard for me to know for sure. I mean, I know from osmosis and I know from my friends and I know from – Reporting, I left Wall Street in 2004, and I can tell you it was uh, cutthroat, ruthless. Uh, you know, the scars, I have scars on my back from, from working there for 17 years. Uh, you know, yes, you got paid well, but, you know, psychologically you paid a, a big price. Uh, you know, it was really a cutthroat, Darwinian environment. As, as used to be said at Lazard, it wasn't enough for you to succeed, others have to fail. <laughs> So, I mean, there aren't many professions where that is a mantra. Yeah. Um, I think it's slightly more sober. The White House, maybe that could be a mantra. Uh, that could be a mantra, yes. In, in Congress, that could be a mantra. Uh, there are, you know, several places where there's zero-sum games. Uh, Wall Street is one big zero-sum game. I mean, you know, think about it. The bonus pool is, a f- you know, a fixed amount of money every year. Uh, uh, and the number of people uh, who work there are fixed and who are going to get bonuses. So... Uh, if you get uh, if your bonus is X, that means somebody else's bonus uh, uh, has to be X minus or X plus. So if somebody gets a higher bonus, that means you're going to get a lower bonus. So uh, you know, th- it's the jockeying is very intense, especially at this time of year. I mean, this people aren't working anymore, or basically aren't working. They're just worried about uh, what their bonus is going to be. But I think that um, because of the re-regulation of Wall Street and Dodd Frank and and what a lot of 
things that used to be sort of, uh, uh, you know, when, he, when he, Wall Street used to be sort of a light touch regulatory environment, which, by the way, we're going back to. Uh, but in this interim period from, say, 2010, when Dodd-Frank passed to now for the last seven years, I think Wall Street's been a, a bit more sober than it was when I was there. And, and uh, you know, people work uh, really hard. Uh, they uh, uh, Sometimes it's a lot of busy work. Uh, sometimes it's on real transactions. And, you know, it's as ruthless as ever. Now, you do you have any good stories? I mean, I've written I've written books. Uh, we about, we could about, we could read them aloud on the yeah. we could do some, a, a, a reading. Do you have yeah. Do you have a Can you give us one good one? jeez. Uh, uh, I mean, you mean do you want uh, Wall Street stories or Donald Trump stories? Well, you well, uh, you you spent time with Trump, right? I have. I've I've, I've let's spent, do it. Let's go yeah, with we'll a, a little, let's do a Trump a little, story. A little, a little, a little Trump, Trump uh, action. Uh, um, this is truly one of my favorite all-time stories, whether or not, I mean, the fact that it involves Trump is just all the more delicious. So uh, in, in 2013, uh, uh, before Trump was a, a candidate, when he was just a mediocre real estate developer uh, in Manhattan, uh, whose specialty was uh, golf courses, um, uh, I was assigned by The Atlantic uh, to write a piece about uh, how, what Wall Street thought about Donald Trump. And uh, it was a lo- long piece, one of those nice big uh, Atlantic pieces, and basically it covered the idea that uh, Wall Street hates Donald Trump, hates doing business with him, and for good reason, because um, he had uh, uh, like somewhere between four and six, the number keeps changing. You know, it's funny, uh, the Atlantic has like rigorous uh, fact-checking, much like Vanity Fair, and we fact-checked this rigorously and um, came up with the conclusion that four of his companies had gone bankrupt. You know, s- since he's been, uh, uh, you know, candidate and then president, somehow that number's gone up to six. So I don't, I don't know where the other two came from, but uh, somewhere between four and six of his companies have gone bankrupt. That means that, 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 that Wall Street banks and their investors have lost billions of dollars as a result of Donald Trump. So, so they don't want to have anything uh, uh, to do with him. And that's why, uh, you know, the best he can do for borrowing money lately has been through the German bank, Deutsche Bank, which may or may not be the subject of Mueller's subpoena uh, today. Uh, uh, but so I write this piece, and I also included it such nuggets as that Donald Trump cheats at golf. Um, that he cheats at golf? Cheats at golf, and, and that a lot of Wall Street people who play golf with him know and watch and see him cheating at golf. How does he cheat out of curiosity? Oh, I mean, there's so many different ways. But, I mean, uh, uh, I've had uh, friends of mine uh, tell me that, um, uh, you know, he wanted to get into this uh, club on Long Island called uh, Deepdale, which is sort of a Tony, prestigious, uh, you know, uh, waspy uh, club uh, on the north shore of Long Island. And Trump recently, this is like recently, you know, just before he became president, wanted to be... Uh, wanted to get in, and uh, I'm told that the uh, head of the club didn't want him in for obvious reasons, and um, he's so uncouth, and uh, so they said, well, look, we know he cheats, so keep an eye out for him cheating, so if he cheats, that's going to be, you know, we can't let him in, so, uh, you know, the first hole, not much of an incident, the second hole, he shanks his drive way off to the right into the woods, and he proceeds to march up 
the middle of the fairway in imperious Donald Trump fashion, uh, with his caddy trailing uh, like 10 paces behind. And all of a sudden, uh, my, 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 my friend hears out, out of the corner of his ear, uh, 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 Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump, I found your ball. You walked right by it. Uh, can you, you know, it's back here. So uh, <laughs> Donald goes back and, uh, you know, hits, hits his second shot from the middle of the fairway instead of, uh, you know, taking a penalty uh, stroke because uh, uh, he'd hit his ball I- into the woods. And, of course, uh, that... That was enough to ding him from Deepdale. So that was the end of the Donald at Deepdale. I don't even know why he got dinged, but that's why you got dinged, Donald, because you cheat at golf. So, uh, of course, he says to me, I never cheated golf, William. I never cheated at golf. That's a good impression. And, uh, you know, I don't need to cheat at golf because I'm a club champion, you know. I don't need to cheat at golf. And how dare you say I cheated golf. So the article came out, and um, I was asked to go on Bloomberg TV to talk about it. And the anchors, uh, you know, part of actually what the article revealed was that he's actually not the worst businessman in the world. He may be the worst real estate developer, but he's smart enough to know not to put his own capital into several of his build, you know, new buildings over time, uh, and he just lent his name in exchange for fees. So that, I think, was a, 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 a relatively intelligent step on his part so that he wasn't putting his capital at risk. So uh, the anchors on, the, on, on Bloomberg were sort of trying to get me to say that he really was a bad businessman. And I was saying, well, he's not as bad as you think. He actually he made a clever decision to, to back away from using his own capital to build buildings, but to, to actually use his name and get fees for his name. And incredibly, so that happens. And, and, I, and, and I heard that Donald didn't like the article, which is you know, standard. And then, uh, you know, a few months later, Graydon asked me to write a piece uh, for Vanity Fair about uh, the Schneiderman uh, lawsuit with Trump about Trump University, which at that time, you know, Graydon is so prescient that he knew it would become something. And of course, it did. But at that time, nobody was following it. So I write... This uh, is 2013? This is 2014. Yeah. So again, no, he's not a, he's not a candidate. Um, not even... Uh, uh, going back to the Atlantic, uh, one the kicker of that piece was that uh, Trump told me that uh, uh, he should have stayed in the 2012 race because he would have won. That's what he told me. And I thought that was such a joke and so preposterous that I used it as the kicker to my piece. Okay, so then uh, in 2014, I'm writing, uh, I, I have to call him up again and see if he'll be interviewed. And I'm thinking, well, I know he didn't like the Atlantic piece. Uh, you know, can he possibly resist Vanity Fair? A story about, you know, Trump University and his, his, his debate with, his legal debate with Eric Schneiderman. So I call him up, and he basically tells me how much he hates the, uh, 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 the Atlantic article and how much he hates uh, uh, Graydon Carter. And, um, and then he says to me, um, but I was watching you on Bloomberg when, they, when you did that interview about the Atlantic piece, uh, and they tried to bait you to say bad things about me, but you didn't, and I really appreciated that. So as a result, I'm going to talk to you now. And then he said the best line of all times. He said, like me, and this is key, like me, you're a good-looking guy and you have a great head of hair. <laughs> did, you, did you laugh on the phone? Like, what did you... Did... I mean, I have laughed about that so many times since then. That is literally part of the family lore. Now. Like me. Like me. 
That's you're the key. You're a good-looking guy. Those two words are the key. Like me. So now, do, does it make you question if you are ugly and have Absol- thinning hair? Or, I, and I'm or- wondering, do I have an orangutan <laughs> on top of my head? Is that what he sees? Is that what I have? Have you spoken to any of these, the, your Wall Street sources or buddies or whatever, after Trump won and, and, or even in the past few months and like, um, what they think about all this? I think they're dumbfounded. I mean, there's, there's no way anybody... There are a lot of people in this country that are not dumbfounded. I, I understand that. And, and I think we're still, you know, sitting here on the Upper West Side of New York, I think people are still trying to reconcile that a year later. I think people are still having trouble. I mean, now that... I mean, don't forget, New Yorkers knew what this guy was about. I find it so fascinating that New Yorkers knew what this guy was about, but yet we failed, this is the media capital of the country, right, failed to convey that information to the rest of the country. Well, that's because, that's because I, I mean, I just left, I just had a, uh, Tim Wu interviewing him for next week's podcast, and, and, and he was talking about the attention market that we live in today and so on and so forth. And he said, you know, the thing that Trump is, is the best at is being able to manipulate anything to his own will as far as attention goes. And I think that the media, we fell to that, right? I mean, absolutely. I, I believe Les Moonves, whether he was joking or not, uh, he said it was taken out of context. Okay, I believe him. Uh, at, at CBS, the CEO of CBS said that Trump has been the best thing that's come along for CBS in a long time. And I'm sure that Jeff Zucker feels the same way. And, and the New York Times and, and Vanity Fair. And, and, and the Washington Post and you, you name it. But I think people are getting, frankly, a little sick of it all. Yeah, I, I, I think... I mean, I actually Even west of the Hudson, I think they're really getting sick of it. Do you think that... So, so how, when did you first meet him? 2013. 2000, for that story. Yes. Uh, um, did you think he was just preposterous immediately when you first met him? Or was it, was it a gradual preposterousness that snuck in? Well, I mean, again, you have to remember the context... Uh, he was somebody who had been in the 2012 presidential race for a nanosecond. He was in the 2008 and right. two, and also right, right. governor, also yeah. for a nanosecond, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and then when he said, "Well, I should have stayed in 2012 because I would have won," because yeah. Mitt Romney. So I thought that was a joke. I mean, I really thought uh, he was displaying a sense of humor, and so I, but but it would have serious sense of. So I used that as the kicker. Um, so, I mean, to, to me, I mean, to New Yorkers, not just to me, Donald Trump has always been, been a buffoon. I mean, you know, uh, whether it's tabloid headlines or his gaudy buildings or, I mean, you know, uh, we're just up the street from the gaudiest buildings that have ever been constructed in this city along the Riverside uh, Drive, uh, you know, where he first owned it he talked about building the tallest building in the world television city and that didn't happen and then he lost control of the development and it went to some some uh, hong kong businessmen and then he put his name on the buildings and then after he got elected president the people who lived there wanted their names off the building so we knew that he was frankly nothing short of a buffoon uh but now happens to be a buffoon president i know you have only have a few minutes you've got to you've got to run off to do a tv interview um uh, but I want to get your take on um, on Bitcoin. Mm. 
Mm. Have you uh, you own any bitcoins? Did you buy I, them or? I, I do not. Do, do you regret not buying them? No, I don't. I don't regret. I do mean, you think now? Do you think as you know, someone that understands the way these markets work and so on and so forth? I mean, today it's already. I, I mean, at last I checked, it was like thirteen thousand five hundred almost. Do you? I mean, do you have it connected to your heart monitor? I mean, no, I have. Your, a, your I, I have a. Uh, I I I'm I'm a I'm really interested in cryptocurrencies, yeah. so yeah. I you know I check them a lot and get little alerts when they hit certain numbers. Well, look, you had, you had, I mean, one of the great, and I encourage people to listen to it, the, the interview you did with the Winklevi about, you know, took their $45 million yeah. uh, of Facebook winnings and turned it into a billion-dollar Bitcoin fortune. Uh, Probably, I think it's now up to almost like $1.6 or something insane. It's just, basically astounding. Uh, uh, I mean... Uh, of course, I'm wondering: Do they date? Where are the girlfriends? Do they spend all their time just uh, <laughs> playing guitar, uh, mining and, bitcoins? And mining Bitcoin. uh, I mean, so look, a Bitcoin um, to me, it's like tulip bulbs. You uh, think it's going to crash like that? I, f- I mean, it's not tied to anything. It's not. There's nothing. But th- technically, gold isn't really tied well, to anything these days. But at least gold is made into jewelry. Yeah, but way. how many people wear gold jewelry? I mean, it's it's it seems that gold is the more of a... Nebuchadnezzer, uh, King Amagam, uh, <laughs> Donald Amednon, Trump. I mean, Donald Trump all through his uh, triplex and Trump Tower. Uh, look, I mean, at least there's a use for gold. There, I mean, Bitcoin, I suppose... I and mean, look... You're much more knowledgeable about it. I'm just curious uh, if, from a from a financial than, than standpoint, I. it seems that there are. You Every know, day, people are talking about it. Yes. Every single day. Yeah. You know, when it goes up like this, people wonder what's about. What's it all about? What have I missed? Is it too late for me? Should I, Should I get into it? Uh, you know, I was speaking up in Massachusetts last night, and uh, they, the speaker, like two weeks before me, had been speaking about Bitcoin, and a guy who was in the audience says he bought it for like three thousand bucks, and now it's, you know. 13,500. And so he's happy. I mean, there are people, a lot of people who are happy, but, um, you know, you should invest in things that you understand. I mean, look, I have an investment uh, manager, uh, so I don't do my own investing. So, I mean, and he you would. Sh- is your, you should make your investment manager the Winklevi. Well, I, I sh- <laughs> I, if I take, I wish I had taken my forty-five million from Facebook and given it to the Winklevoss so, to turn it into this. I mean, it's a great story, the Winklevoss. They've been a great story for a decade. Now. Yeah, no, they, um, they. But I don't have. They're the smart. They, of course, they're smart. Yeah, they don't get the credit they deserve. I think they they were no, played they, by dumb people on television on the on in the movies. Yeah. Um, I know you have to get out of here, uh, uh, but I I have one last question for you. Um, do you think? Um, that uh, how long do you think the market is going to continue on its trajectory? And do you, do you think this is like, is this something that normal consumers listening to this, if they've made it this far, should actually be worried about? Uh, absolutely. I mean, if you what you should do now for normal people who are in the market and who've made a lot of money, you know, relatively speaking and on a percentage basis in the last year, I mean, the market owes people nothing at this point. Nothing. We're at new highs all the time. It's beyond what and anybody thought would be likely, especially in, in, you know, the last year since Donald Trump was elected. So the market owes you nothing. Uh, I, 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 don't be greedy. Take a bunch of money out. A bunch. I mean, I'm talking about a lot. And even if you don't know what to do with it, just leave it in the bank or put it under your mattress because you're going to be glad in a year. Because in a year, sometime within the next year, you know, between now and the, and, and the, and the uh, uh, elections in 2018, 
something is going to, it's a guarantee. I mean, the, the guy is a high beta individual, uh, uh, and, you know, the market owes you nothing. Uh, uh, the tax bill is on the verge of being passed, so that's already baked into the market. So to me, it's just a question of not uh, if, it's uh, just a question of when it's going to Correct. And corrections are good, by the way. You got to take some of the air out of this. I mean, you know, Warren Buffett always invests uh, after the correction. And that's clearly a smart thing to do. Well, I think if you do sell your money in the stock market, you should buy Bitcoin. It's, or, or, or uh, you know, what is the other one? Litecoin, Li- Ethereum, Ethereum, Monero. Yeah. This, right. you know, there's, there's a long, well, long can list. I, can I invest in the Winklevoise ETF? You yet? can. I think you can invest. I think that it's on the verge of being able to invest in their fund. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you their number. You can call anything them. to do with the Winklevoise. I'm very interested in. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for taking the time thank today. You. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to my guest, Bill Cohan. If you enjoyed this conversation and it didn't scare you too much, it scared me, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. And don't forget to leave a glowing, five-star, beautiful, fantastic, amazing, gorgeous review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. Thanks to my editors at Vanity Fair. But thanks most of all to my sponsor this week, HelloFresh. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I'll see you next week, and I have a fantastic guest who is truly fascinating and will blow your mind with some of the things that we're going to talk about. So be sure to tune in next week. Have a great week. Thanks. Thanks.